0: Thank you, Holly. What's up, guys? A um, couple of quick notes before we get, what the heck? That's a lot of Oreos. A uh, couple of quick notes before we get started. Number one, we are experimenting with a, uh, a phone bucket. So if you don't want to be distracted by your vibrating telephone, then you can come toss it up here if you want. Um, or if you're a heathen, you can keep it with you. Um, hey, I mean, bring, a, <laughs> bring, bring your Bible Wednesday night, maybe. I know like last week I told y'all it was okay, but we're, we're, we're changing. But all the text will be on the screen from now on. All the text. So, uh, point number two. Okay. Um, I've got a lot of comments on this kind of like Tyler. He's going to have like a vote right at the congregational meeting about his, his beard. What do you guys think of the green pants? Yeah. Yay. Nay. No, I only wear them because my wife loves them. You don't count. I only wear them because my wife loves them. And she said, I look good when I left the house. So we're going to, we're going to keep them. But I do value your opinion. Um, Thank you, Katie. I appreciate that. Um, So if you do have your Bible um, and not your phone, you can open up to James one and we're going to be in James one, uh, this week. And, um, tonight we are embarking on a journey, a journey through the book of James. This is our first week actually like getting into the actual text, going systematically through God's word in James. Um, and so this is our first week in the handbook to hypocrisy, the book of James. Um, and we have a lot to do tonight, so we're actually going to get right started. Um, but what I want to do is I want to read the whole thing. You heard, you heard a little piece, uh, like actually half of it from, from Holly. And what we're going to do is I want to read James 1, verses 1 through 18 in its entirety, so we can like soak it in, all right? So if you have your Bible, you can use your phones today as the like the last day that's okay to open your phone during GCF, but in the future, phone bucket. Um, All right, so James 1, verses 1 through verse 18. James, a servant of God, is it not on the screen yet? No, it's okay. You can listen well. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers grass, its flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I want to pray one more time before we get rolling. So Lord God, we we need you to understand truth. We need you to reveal truth. Um, Our... um, to live life faithfully to, the, to your glory, we need to know your truth, and we need to understand your truth, and we need to apply your truth. So, Lord, tonight, reveal your truth to us. Um, yeah, we, we, re- we need you. Um, so just be here, be present, open our eyes, open our hearts, um, give us willing and attentive spirits. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. All right, so uh, every story, whether it's a book or a TV show or a movie, they all have conflict, right? There are a couple components that make up like any story, right? You have a protagonist or like plural protagonists and you have antagonists. So you have good guys and bad guys and you have conflict and resolution, right? And so like those are pieces of like every story. And part of that is the conflict and resolution. Every story has conflict and every story has some kind of revolution, at least any, every good one. And um, if, if you've been around, you know like my favorite yeah my favorite story is Lord of the Rings it 's not even close it's amazing, right Tolkien was a genius, and the books are incredible and I've read them a couple of times. but I will say this: there are a couple of moments in the movies of Lord of the Rings. How many of you guys have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Oh, sweet, like a lot of you great so there's a couple moments in the movies that like that are that they surpass the the beauty of the of the novels okay and uh, one of those moments is uh, is the end of, of, of the final movie, the final book. And it centers kind of on these two characters that are kind of ancillary characters, um, these two hobbits named Merry and Pippin, right? And so at the beginning of this story of Lord of the Rings, at the beginning of the trilogy, Merry and Pippin are these, uh, they kind of tag along to this massive quest this massive conflict in the story, they're just tagalongs. They're kind of ancillary characters, adding a little brevity and humor and fun to the otherwise kind of weight of the, the, the story of the, of, the, of the Lord of the Rings. And so at the beginning though, th- these two characters are kind of like, they're angsty teens, right? They're young, they're rebellious, they're lighting fireworks when they shouldn't. They kind of go on this journey when they shouldn't. They're, um, throughout the story, we see they're greedy and selfish and kind of arrogant and petty. Um, and so here, th- these, two, these two characters, Mary and Pippin, um, By the end of the story, though, they change out of their pettiness and their greed and their selfishness. And there's this moment at the very end of the final movie where you get to see that transformation in full effect. And um, what's happening is, I wanna paint this picture, there's this big plane, right? And so the armies of of men are kinda going up against in this final battle against the armies of Mordor, all these orcs and orcai, these bloodthirsty creatures just out for destruction. And so there's this, like, huddled mass of maybe a couple of hundred men left. And in, in, that, in that group is two hobbits, Merry and Pippin. And you have this scene of, of these men surrounded by thousands and thousands of orcs. And what happens is, is Aragorn, one of the, like, redeemer figures in the story, he, he just charges. He says, for Frodo, and he charges. And you get goosebumps when you see it. And then those goosebumps get bigger because the first two to follow are Merry and Pippin this tiny, tiny creatures that probably held a sword five or six times are the first two to follow their leader into battle. And so there's this moment where like on this massive plane, thousands of orcs, the only three people moving are Aragorn and Merry and Pippin. Soon everyone follows and it's funny because they get like trampled by all the men because they're so slow because they got these tiny little legs. But that picture and that transformation of Merry and Pippin from these angsty, rebellious, selfish, self-centered creatures to these courageous, self-sacrificing heroes is kinda, is the result of this massive conflict that they enter into throughout the story. They encounter imprisonment, they get tied up, they, they, uh, they, they don't have enough food to eat. If you know Mary and Pippin in the story, they need food to eat, right? They're the ones that second breakfast comes from. Um, but they encounter all of these trials and struggles, they see the cities destroyed, they have friends that die, and they encounter all of this conflict and my, one of the reasons they're my favorite characters is because you get to see this beautiful transformation happen from Mary and Pippin at the beginning to Marion Pippin at the end. And it's all a result of the conflict that they faced and the way that they responded to it. And so our text tonight, the book of James here, it's all about trial, it's all about conflict, and it's all about how we deal with it, respond to it, and think about it. And so that's what we're after tonight. We want to think differently about trial, We want to think differently about hardship and suffering and the hard things that life throws at us. And so the big theme for tonight, the big idea that I want, if you could take away nothing but this one sentence, this is what I want us to take away. The only object worthy of your faith in trials is a God bigger than trials. The only object worthy of your faith in trials is a God bigger than them. And James opens up in our text, in verse two, like the first thing he says about trials is this, in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if, he doesn't say maybe, he says when, we've talked about this before. Life is stink sometimes, life is hard. We live in a Genesis three fallen world where we're sinners and everyone else around us is sinners. Excuse me, we live in a place where we will face trials. When you face trials, James says, when it is, it is inevitable. And um, anyone that tells you otherwise, they're either, they're either trying to um, uh, uh, pacify you and delude you into some kind of, kind of complacency or they're, they're after some kind of, uh, they're trying to sell you something. There will be trials. There, there is no pie-in-the-sky idea of religion or Christianity that makes, that makes um, life absent suffering. And so James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And he says it's not enough just to endure, as we read, But what is the first thing he says? Count it all joy when you face trials. It's not enough just to endure, just to clench your fists and withstand the onslaught of the cruelty of life. But we have to find joy in it? What does that mean? How am I supposed to find joy in the hardest things in life? And I want you to hold on to that that question because at the very end, we're going to circle back around to that. But in order to establish how we find joy in that, we need to understand God first. And that's where we're going here. Um, read on with me count it all joy my brothers when you face trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing Um, this is the Bible describing exactly what Mary and Pippin went through to arrive at their transformation what does the end of that verse say a more complete a perfect you is a result of what steadfastness through trial. We we, we have a lot of self-help, right? Like we we, we love self-help. We love self-help today. We love any kind of thing, any kind of blog or TED talk that's gonna help me be a better me. James is saying one of the best things you can do to be a better you is to endure trials, but not just endure them. One more time, look at these verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your what? Your faith. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The anchor that you hold on to in the tumultuous storms of chaos that life throws at you, the anchor for your soul is your faith. It's your faith. Now that idea inherently isn't something actually that's really foreign to what we encounter today. Let me explain. Like uh, um, The idea of perseverance and, and chugging through the hard things in life Like uh that's not foreign to culture. Uh it's only foreign to culture in in the object of what it is you having faith in amidst those struggles. So let me explain. The uh there are two there are two things that you're allowed to have faith in culturally, really. Outside of religion, there are two things that you're allowed to have faith in um through struggle. And that's one is yourself, right? Like believe in yourself. That's every Disney movie ever. Believe in yourself, know yourself, be yourself, right? It's this a priori belief in the individual as supreme, as, with the ability to cope and handle and deal with everything that life throws at you. So that's the first one, faith in yourself. Or second, it's faith in your group, your collective identity as, as some kind of small group or even, even at the largest scale, humanity itself. Like we have the ability, we are good, we can handle this, we're gonna handle global want, we're gonna handle everything that life and circumstances throw at us. It's the a priori belief in the collective, and so the uh, this shows up. This idea of enduring through through hard things, suffering, and trial. It shows up in politics. it Shows up in culture. Uh, it so- shows up academically. Shows up socially in our relationships. Uh, either faith in yourself or faith in your group identity, and yet James offers us something better here. The faith James is offering isn't a faith in the frailty of humanity or the frailty of your own self. It's faith in something bigger. And I want to reiterate, I want to reiterate our point tonight is that the only object worthy of your faith, it isn't yourself, it isn't your group, it isn't even even your church. It's God. The only object worthy of your faith in trials is God because God is bigger than trials. And I want to break that up in two parts tonight. I want to take God is bigger than trials. The reason we can have faith in God is because God is an object of faith worthy of our faith, right? And so I want to take the idea of God being bigger and I want to break it into two parts. So God is bigger in the first section we're going to see. God is transcendent. God is transcendent of our trials. And then the second, God is good in spite of our experience in trials. So God is transcendent and God is good. And I want to read verses five through 11 again. And this is where we see God as, as bigger, as transcendent and above our trials. So let's read uh, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching, heat with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what the heck does transcendent mean? And where is transcendent in there? Well, basically, like transcendent just means above and beyond our human experience. It means like above and beyond the limitations of what we can know, what we can understand, what we can think, what we can believe, right? Um, and J- our examples in here, James that gives us, it might help us understand that um, if you're not tracking with that. But so, so, so he says in the very first verse of that, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. God is transcendent because God is the creator of the cosmos. He created the universe. That includes the intangibles of thought and reason and wisdom. God is the originator of wisdom. God is the source of wisdom and God is the giver of wisdom. God transcends wisdom. He lives above and beyond and above wisdom because he is the creator of wisdom. And James makes this point specifically about wisdom because wisdom is necessary for us. You and I, as we wrestle through life, we hit trials wisdom is necessary and let's clarify what wisdom means though real quick like wisdom isn't let's put it, wisdom isn't merely the possession of truth but it's your application of it as well wisdom isn't just your possession of truth but it's your application of it as well we've all heard the phrase right like what it's not how you it's not what you said it's how you said it right like if you've ever been in any kind of relationship like i'm married i we talk, it's not what you said it's how you said it all the time right That's kind of an encapsulation of what wisdom means in the ancient world. See, religious adherence or or dogmatic adherence to truth, absent context, or absent the the, the, uh, personal realities of the people interacting with that truth, that is legalism, that's not wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to apply truth, knowing how to understand truth and apply it not only to your life, but to the circumstances surrounding you. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? It's a little bit up there, but is that, are we with that? Yeah? Sweet. Um, So I want to give an example of that first, actually. I think a really, really helpful one because most of y'all are under 21 and you live on a university campus and alcohol is something y'all face probably weekly. Um, Do we think alcohol in and of itself is a bad thing? No. 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 God gives us instructions on how to use alcohol, right? Like Jesus made wine right? A part of the the sacrament of um, the Lord's Supper was wine. Alcohol isn't in and of itself a bad thing, but we can be wise or unwise in how we use it, right? Like, for example, God's word says drunkenness off the table, right? That is an unwise application of alcohol. (laughs) Or two, like, you got a friend that really, really struggles with, like, going partying and getting drunk, or you have a parent who, like, wrestles with alcoholism, like I do, like, Drinking around them, probably a really bad idea, an unwise idea, right? That is unwise, that's a poor application of alcohol. third example, probably more specific to you guys. You're under 21, it's illegal. If you drink a beer outside of your parents' home in Montana, it's illegal. That's an unwise application of something otherwise innocuous, right? Does that make sense? What wisdom is? It's not just truth. It's the application of truth to our life. And so the point that we're making here is, is is if you're confused about how to deal with trial, about struggle in life, if you're confused about how to apply the gospel and apply all these truths, you know, about who God is and who you are and what the Bible says about what you're supposed to do. If you're confused as to how to apply that, that's okay. Ask God. It's not wrong to be ignorant. It's not wrong to to, to be immature or a young believer and not understand how to apply God's truth. James says, ask God for the wisdom that you lack because God transcends wisdom. God is transcendent above our trials. He is transcendent above wisdom. And in application, this means two things. That verse means two things, asking God for wisdom. One, prayer, the obvious, ask God, right? Asking God is prayer, right? Makes sense? pray that God would open your eyes to the proper application of truth. Pray that God would open your eyes and open your heart to the proper application of his truths. And prayer, because we believe in a sovereign God, a God that meticulously rules the universe. Um, There's like, here's here's a reality for you guys, okay? You guys live like, some of you for the first year, this is your first year living outside your parents' home, making your own decisions, living life on your own. Meaning you're getting experiences and you're faced with choices and challenges that you've never faced before on your own. And so there's, this, like, there's this, this idea that you're kind of feeling your way through it, right? Like you're experiencing it and the only way that you can experience it is by experiencing it for the first time. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? You've seen Bird Box, the movie on, on Netflix, right? They got the blindfolds on. That's kind of how you guys are experiencing life right now as adults. You're in your first couple of years of living life on your own. And you're feeling your way through it. One of our pastors puts it this way. You're living your life in Braille, right? You're feeling your way through it. Um, And it's reasonable that you don't get it exactly right every time. It's reasonable that you don't have all the answers, that you don't have the wisdom to apply God's word in its entirety to your life. That's a reasonable thing. James is acknowledging that for us. But that is no excuse. That is no excuse to remain in, in immaturity, and no excuse to to neglect and disregard the truth of God as it applies to your life. It's okay to be ignorant. It's okay to not have answers. Ask God for help. And the second way this applies to us, what is the source of God's wisdom as far as we can understand it? What is the source of God's wisdom as we can understand it? What has God given us to know him? His word, right? God's word is the objective revelation. It's God revealing truth to us It's God revealing how the universe works. It's God revealing how he works and how we work. It's God showing us who he is, what he is like, and how we are to respond to that. And so the way that we seek the wisdom of God is by prayer, asking him for it, because we need his help, because we're frail. But two, we have this whole book of truth that he's given us this whole book of truth that he has given us to apply to our lives, to help us understand ourselves and navigate with blindfolds on. The second way that James highlights his, uh, God's transcendence and his, his, um, his existence above and beyond us is really by contrasting the frailty of our humanity with, uh, the, the eternality of God. So read with me verses nine through 12, um, Actually, let's do verse nine through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises when it's scorching heat. Excuse me. The sun sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, I don't know if y'all know this. I don't know if they taught you this yet here at the university, but you're going to (laughs) die. Someday you're going to plot and you're going to be dead here on earth. You're not going to have breath anymore. Um, I know it's shocking, right? An inevitable reality, but uh, it is. Death is an inevitable reality that shapes how we should look at some things. And the example James is using here to show our limitations and God's limitlessness is economic inequality. Right? That's, that's what the whole text was that we just read. It's the economic inequality of the rich and the poor. It's not a new thing. Economic inequality is not a new thing. Just like today, it's something that affected many, many people and had consequences for many, many people. But unlike today, economic inequality often for most people meant life and death. It meant the ability to go to a physician or a doctor or get some kind of medication, ancient medication. It meant food and water. It meant not dying in famines. It meant being able to travel and, and, and move out of, uh, out of uh, environmental catastrophe or political catastrophe or war. Economic inequality was significantly more, had significantly more consequences to the ancient world than it does now. Now Western economic inequality, uh, it, means, it means having a new Lexus versus having an old Jeep, right? means having a pixel three or a pixel two, right? And I I get, I'm not making light of the the ends of the economic distribution, right? Like there is homelessness and there is opulent wealth. But for the 99% of us in the middle, our ability to pay for things doesn't, rarely means life and death. It is rarely has the impact on our lives that it did in the ancient world. And it's the ancient world that James was speaking to the ancient world that James was giving this wisdom and this advice to, his encouragement is to look beyond your circumstances, right? You're going to die, so what's wealth? It's to look beyond your immediate circumstances, the immediacy of economic inequality, and to look beyond it. Poverty and possessions, poverty and, and wealth, it only lasts a lifetime, but poverty of the soul lasts for eternity meaning don't take too much confidence in what you have and don't be too distraught by what you don't. Because even poor Christians today and even poor Christians who lived only 15, 20, 30, 40 years had Jesus. Even poor Christians have Jesus. James's larger point outside of this is facing adversity and discrimination and suffering and trial, it doesn't make you any less Christian. Facing trial doesn't make you any less Christian. As we said earlier, it's inevitable, right? James calls us to have a faith not in ourselves and not in each other and not in humanity and not in any kind of social system. James calls us to have faith in a God that transcends wealth, that transcends circumstances, that transcends our wisdom, that transcends us. See, we are limited by our lack of everything. We are limited by our lack of wisdom. We're limited by our own frailty and our own failures and weaknesses. God is limited by nothing. God exists outside of your trial. He could see further than you can. And so we have faith in God, reason number one, because he is bigger, because he transcends our trials. Reason number two, let's read James 1:12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test who receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's eternity, right? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, Then desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The second reason that we can have faith in God and not ourselves amidst our trials is because God is good and we are not. You see, we have to put faith in God and not ourselves, not humanity in any kind of capacity because there is nothing good inside of us outside of what God has graciously given us. What James just said in that first paragraph, residing in your desires, residing in my desires and our souls is a desire for rebellion. It's a need for satisfaction at the expense of all else. We are not the origin of anything good. And this is a hard pill for us to swallow. Uh, read verses 13 through 15 again and feel the weight of it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are not the origin of anything good. In fact, we are often the origin of most of our suffering. Anything good that we produce or anyone around us produces is the grace of God. And you're like, well, wait a second. Nothing good? Like nothing, right? Like nothing good comes from humanity. What about like soup kitchens? What about nonprofit organizations? What about like Doctors Without Borders, right? What about like love in marriage? That's good. That's a human institution, right? What about all those good things? What about good virtues like kindness and generosity? And I'd agree with you. Those are good things. Those are great things. Those are virtuous things. But read James 16 and 17 with me. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every, every, not some, not a lot, not much, not most, every good, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The point is not to say that good doesn't exist. The point is not to say that good things are bad things. The point is to recognize that human good, any kind of good you and I can experience in life, we are not the source of it. So faith in ourselves as we are some kind of unique pinnacle of evolutionary biology, because we know virtue and good and we can define morality, God's word says the only source of good is God. Put it this way how many like how many you like art and don't think it's a sham (laughs) so if you look at a painting and you say uh you look at that painting it's just beautiful right you have this massive beautiful like opulent painting no one's gonna be like yo that that paint did a really good job painting this right that blue (laughs) super blue (laughs) that green that's a lit green that's a celtic green right no, nobody's gonna say that the talk about the paintbrush like it's some unique special paintbrush that painted this opulent portrait. No, we're gonna we're gonna celebrate the artist, the one who painted it, the one whose creative mind it came from. We don't celebrate the tools, we celebrate the artist who used those tools to bring about something glorious and beautiful and wonderful. Same way with our faith. Anything good we produce. We are the tools, we are the outlets for God's grace and goodness. Meaning anything good in us is a direct gift of God. We are the tools, we are the paint, we are the paintbrush in God's hands. So no one in their right mind would celebrate the goodness of humanity outside celebrating the wonderful kindness and graciousness and the generosity of God. So God is good, and we are not. For some of us, the, uh, the idea of trial, that was what we started with, right? The idea of trial. That's what this text is about, right? Trial, suffering, pain. How do we live through life through the hard? The idea of trial is, is kind of, it's a little distant, right? Like we're in the midst, some of us are in the midst of, you know, hashtag the good life, right? That's our, that's that Instagram post, right? Hashtag the good life. Some of us aren't wrestling with a lot, man. We, we, we we're we doing well in school. We got a good job. We got a good group of friends to play volleyball with and throw balloons at each other and stack Oreos. Like, life's good, right? Some of us, trial doesn't seem real present. And then uh, there are a lot of us, I'd imagine, where suffering and trial is a present reality. Like we're walking through something right now. It can be something just... Like you're you're in a, you're A and P. You're in a tough tough class. We got to memorize like everything in the universe, basically to pass A and P. And you're you're, you're daunted at the prospect of even getting a C in that class, much less doing well and getting a an A or B. Um, even deeper, say like um, like you're you're really really wrestling with the financial reality of being a student. Like holy crap, I'm on my own. That's dope. But I'm on my own. That sucks. <laughs> How do I pay for things? <laughs> do I have to get a job? You get this looming future of student debt, and you gotta like live right now, you gotta pay for Nachos at Jakers, right? And so you gotta think about getting a job, but a job is also gonna take away from your studies and it's gonna take away from time with your friends and all the other things you got going on in life. And so there's this weight, this like oppressive burden of this financial reality of, as a student. And then even deeper still, man, I know some of us in here really, really wrestled with some really challenging circumstances in life. Like death of a family member, a tough prognosis, a diagnosis we weren't expecting, something really, really challenging, something deep, deep. It's okay to be confused amidst trial. It's okay to be confused when those things arrive. It's okay not to have all the wisdom in the universe to apply the truth of God to every circumstance. It's okay to acknowledge your limitations as broken people that can't produce good without God. It's okay to acknowledge your limitations and people that are going to die, people that have literal limitations on your cognitive ability, on your, the length of your life, your physical ability to, to work and do things, to get school done and have friends and do all these things. It's okay if, you, if you're relying and trusting. That's really gross. It's okay if you're relying and trusting. It's okay to be confused if you're relying and trusting on the transcendence and the goodness of God. So that begs the question, what if I'm not? What if I'm not relying on God? What if I'm not having faith that God is big? that God is good. I want us to track back a little bit to James 1, 5 through 8 and see what God says about that. See what James says about that. So verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's pretty heavy, yeah? <laughs> you're like, Did you, James just said it's okay not to have all the wisdom, but now you're saying it's not okay to, to, not, to doubt a little bit? Like, help me out here. Well, what does James contrast doubting with in there? What does he contrast it with? That's not rhetorical. Give me something. Faith. Who said that? Nice. Faith. James is contrasting doubt with faith. See, doubt means an unwavering confidence in your own goodness or your own ability to solve your problems. Doubt means an unwavering confidence in your group or humanity or the government or your family to solve all of the trials you face. Doubt is to not believe, as I said, that God is transcendent and good. And as you wrestle with life, as I wrestle with life, life and we get knocked down by our circumstances, and, and the only way to make it out the other side, a better Mary and Pippin, is to have faith in the transcendence and the good of God, the goodness of God, the God of the cosmos that created everything, that created reality, The only way to grow in trial and not be crushed by them is to have faith that God is bigger than your trials, that God is beyond them, and that God is still good despite them. So what if I doubt that? What if I doubt God is transcendent and good? What if I even maybe doubt the existence of a God or a deity? What if I'm really wrestling with that idea? Like I can't reason that with, you know, what I'm learning in, in, in school or just even what I'm thinking about. If you got your Bible open to Mark 9, Verse 23, we're going to read through verse 27. And this is a story of a dude with a, with a, with a kid who's like demon-possessed. And um, Jesus is there, and he wants to heal this guy and uh, this kid. And uh, it picks up in Mark verses 9, verse 23. And Jesus said to him, that's the centurion dude, um, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe help my unbelief, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that almost, so the most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Jesus says in Matthew 20, if faith is small as a mustard seed, can move mountains face as small as a mustard seed God will work wonders the father of this boy acknowledged his frailty he acknowledged where he was weak where he was limited where he was not good where he was unbelieving he cried out to God help me in my unbelief and Jesus still acted miraculously for his good for his son's good for the good of his family for the good of their community. The encouragement of our text tonight is also the weight of it. Doubt, seen rightly, is just an acknowledgement of not just our physical and mental and emotional insufficiencies, but our spiritual ones too. And that is why we need Jesus, because we are insufficient. Doubt, seen rightly, is acknowledging that we are insufficient. Are you tracking? Yeah? Yeah? see, the only way uh, that we can be sufficient is through the cross of Jesus. The gospel, as we said last week, reconciles us back to the God that we rebelled against. But the gospel also matures us as we embark on life as a Christian. And to put it this, this, this way, there's one of the pastors at our church says this, like, I'm a, he calls himself a man of 10,000 little truths, meaning as a Christian, he's just stacking Different truths from God's word on top of different truths from God's word. And so it grows to the point where he matures in Christ. Meaning if you're wrestling with doubt, man, it's rest in what you know. What do you know? Jesus, right? Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants to redeem and love you and, and, and give you new life. Rest in what you know. Start with the little things. Start with Jesus. And then as you as you grow a little bit more, you can start to believe and like start to understand what justification means, what these big Bible words mean for your life. And then you can get a little wisdom, right? Get a little bit of that wisdom and learn to apply that to your life. And then as you grow even more, you learn, you learn about God and the universe and, and, and sin and how it affects all of us. And you grow a little bit more. The full perfection James is talking about in verse four that we grow into doesn't happen overnight doesn't happen overnight. It happens through trial, through struggle, through pain and suffering. So if you want to grow your faith, if you want to doubt less, the bigger the object of your faith is, the bigger your faith can be. The bigger that you believe God is, the more you can trust him, the more you can hope in him. So the best way to tackle your faith, your doubt. It's to believe in a bigger God than you did yesterday. And as James says in verse four, James says in verse four, right? And let steadfastness have its full effect. What's the full effect of steadfastness through trial? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you can be a better you. You can be a better you. Well, What the heck does that mean? Look at th- 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all with unveiled face, that's us seeing God, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Jesus. We're being transformed to be like Christ from one degree of glory to another, to something altogether different. This comes from the Lord who is spirit. A better you has nothing to do with you. A better you is Christ in you. See, what is admirable and lovely about Mary and Pippin is they weren't even the same people they were. They were new people altogether. They were new hobbits. The best version of you isn't you at all, but Christ in you. We cannot transcend our circumstances. We cannot hope and trust in our own goodness amidst them. The good news is we don't have to. We don't have to. That's the good news of the gospel. This is what allows you and I to face even the most dire of circumstances. With joy. We can have joy in the hardest things in life because we have a God who's bigger than our trials. We can rejoice in the hardest things in life because God is bigger and God is good, and we know that. And we can rest and rely and trust in that. So, tonight, walking away, feel the weight of doubt. Feel the weight of your doubt. And then throw it on the cross wrote on the gospel rest in what you know believe God is bigger tomorrow than you did today because the, ob- the only object worthy of your faith in anything is to God bigger than your trials let's pray Lord Father thank you so much for um, your word God thank you for truth Lord uh as we said at the outset, we are frail and broken humans and we are incapable of handling our own situations, much less understanding them, Lord. So Father, we, we ask for you to reveal truth to us and Lord, we ask for your wisdom in how to navigate life with blindfolds on. Lord, let us long for you Those desires that James talks about, Lord, let change those. Give us new desires. Make us new creations that long for your joy. Lord, we love you and we need you. We need you to reveal truth to us and help us apply that truth. Father, it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.